0: Last, last week, we had, we had some testimonies, and Ethan wasn't feeling well and couldn't be here, and we, we tried a video. We really tried. And uh, long story short, it just didn't work out. And I said, you know what? Let's do it when you're, you're here in person. And uh, so I'm going to welcome up Ethan Corey. He's going to come give his testimony.
1: It would have been so much easier. You're on. Okay. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. yeah. All right. I wish you guys would have watched the video because it would have been a lot easier (laughs) instead of me speaking. But uh, so, yeah, most of you guys know my name is Ethan. Last year, my life kind of got turned upside down. Uh, On August 15th, I was uh, diagnosed with cancer. But I'll kind of give you the backstory. I was uh, going to work every day. I really didn't feel anything wrong, you know. Uh, I started getting some bruising from the inside out. And, like, my lymph nodes and stuff started to swell and my wife, you know, she's in the medical field, and she was like, something's wrong. You need to go to the doctor. And I'm like, no, I don't. I'm okay. You know what I mean? There's nothing wrong with me. I feel fine. So, and then I was working, and then like, my foot uh, was just hurting real bad. Like, I couldn't walk on it. And, again, we were working a lot of hours, so I was just like, you know, I climb up and down ladders. I'm like, it's nothing, you know. It's just my fir- foot hurting, and all the guys at work are like, suck it up, you know. So, I'm like, all right. So, then, one day, I just could not walk. So then I told Casey, I was like, all right, I got to go to the hospital. And, of course, this is around the time of COVID. So I go to the hospital, and I'm explaining to him about my foot. And then, you know, my wife cuts me off and is like, well, he has these other problems going on too, you know, with his lymph nodes And he's bruising from the inside out. And uh, I just felt really tired. So they took my blood like they usually do. And uh, a normal white blood count is uh, like 3.7 to like 10 That's the range. That's pretty good. Well, they came back in, and I could see on the nurse's face, like, something was wrong, you know? And then she just told us, she was like, your blood count is 167,000. And so my wife, you know, instantly started crying. You know, me, I'm just over here like, what's that mean? You know what I mean? (laughs) What's going on here, you know? And so, you know, she was like, you know, it's cancer. And then, you know, at first, I was like, you know, okay, you know, what's the next step, you know? You know, I'm always a happy kid, positive, always been in the hospital. I feel like when I'm going off of God's path, he does something to me to put me in the hospital. Because <laughs> he knows that's where he can get my focus. You know, I'm there. He kind of resets me. And, you know, them are other testimonies for another day. Uh, but then, so you know, the nurse told us, you know, what was going on. And the doctor over at Methodist, because we went to Lutheran, And the doctor at Methodist came over right away, and he usually doesn't do that. And so he started explaining to my parents, my dad, and my my wife what's all going on, what's going to take place. And so I had to leave, like, from the Lutheran and go right to Methodist. Like, I was able to say goodbye to my wife, my parents, but I wasn't able to say goodbye to my kids or nothing like that. I had to go right away. And, of course, with COVID going on, I didn't have nobody there the whole time. So I was just by myself dealing with it, and of course, you know, I'm a happy kid, so I, my spirits were, was like, always, I'm always positive, you know, I'm, I try not to be negative, because the world's negative enough, you know, so I just try to be positive in everything, so I go over there, and of course, you know, you got to start the chemo, and I really didn't think nothing like, because I felt fine, kind of, I wasn't like sick, you know, so I kind of felt good, and then I started chemo, and it's like an induction chemo, but, uh, that they, like they kind of give you right when you get there so they can see how your body reacts to it. You know, what, if it works a little bit, if it doesn't, we'll give you stronger. And so before I did chemo, I get a little ahead of myself, you have to do a bone marrow. And, like, they do a bone marrow to see how much cancer is in your body. And I had, like, 90% cancer in my blood. And so, which was pretty, it, it was a lot in my eyes. So I started the first round of chemo, nothing happened. You know, I'm just like, okay, you know, what's our next step? And they were just like, you know, we'll give you a more stronger chemo. And at first, the first chemo really didn't do nothing. It was just, it wasn't that strong. And so I was kind of fine. I mean, I felt like a little tired, you know, because obviously chemo just drains everything in your body. It kills everything. And so that second one came on. And the second one was really like, uh, you know, I was starting to feel down. And so, like the second one, I was like, all right. We're going to, you know, it's going to go down. You know, we're going to get through it, blah, blah, blah. Well, the second one was stronger. So then I lost, like, my taste. I lost, you know, I was losing weight. I just felt, like, depressed. And that's usually not like me. And, like, Methodists, they have such an awesome program. Like, all the nurses were just, they'd come in your room and lift you up, you know. Just when you were down, they would always just bring positive spirit in your room and stuff like that. And so the second one came, nothing, I mean, it, it. Did have an effect, but not as much as I wanted to. And so I was like, man, you know, like, and again, once chemo goes, like, the next two days or three days after it, you just feel tired, defeated, and, like, I was just down on myself, and I was just getting, like, really, really depressed and sad, and, you know, they have these people that come in, as many of you know, in the hospital, they come and do your vitals. Well, there was this one lady that came in, and we kind of hit it off. She's seen me kind of reading my Bible. We didn't get too much in, like, like our faith and stuff like that. We kind of started talking about our kids and how many kids she has, blah, 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 stuff like that, and cracking jokes. Well, then, like, it was, like, in the next couple days because I didn't see her. But then I was, like, really depressed, you know, because the chemo really set in. It didn't really work, you know. We got to do something else. And so we were kind of in that third chemo is, like, your final straw. Then they got to talk to the doctors and see what else they can do. You know, so it's like, man, if this don't work, what's going to happen, you know? So then, like, uh, during them couple days, like, I just felt, like, alone, like, depressed. I'm, like, started questioning my faith. Like, you know, hey, Jesus, are you with me? Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I know he does, like, a lot of stuff in our lives that we don't see. And maybe, you know, me, I don't really see. But I know he does a lot of stuff in our life. But sometimes we're just blind to it because the real world's going on. But this was, like, the first time in my life that I've actually seen God work in front of my eyes. So, like, I was really down questioning, like, do you, are you with me? Like, do you even love me anymore? Blah, blah, blah. You know, just letting the devil get in my head. Because, you know, I was down at that time. So he was like, oh, you know, here's a good time to get in there and start, you know, messing with his head. Well, then that lady comes in to do my vitals, and then she comes in, and she looks at me. And, again, we really didn't talk about faith, but she knew I was a believer. And she just started answering all the questions like I was questioning myself. Like she was like, you know, God's with you when, they don't, when you don't think he is. You know, he's there to, you know, lift you up. You know, he'll be there for you even when he's not. And, like, I was just like, you know, my jaw hit the floor like, what? Like she's answering everything. I was just doubting myself and doubting God, you know. And then when she left the room, like, I was so happy, I had so much, like, joy, I was just, my spirit was, like, restored, you know, lifted up, and it was, like, kind of like pastor, you know, he gave me that verse that I stood on, you know, 1 Peter chapter 10 and 5, you know, he's like, after you suffered a little while, you know, he will strengthen you, restore, and build you back up, and set you on a firm foundation, and it was kind of like that, it was just like, man, I was this, I was like, all right, you know, like, I'm I'm happy. I called my mom. I was like, you ain't going to believe what happened, man. Like, I've just seen a miracle in front of my eyes. And I just, you know, I've read books about Jesus doing miracles. And I love that stuff. I love seeing that stuff happen in front of your eyes. It just, it lights a fire in me. You know, it's just, it's, it's unexplainable. You know what I mean? And so I was just so happy. And, and then, you know, with, just with that, I was like, okay, you know, I'm back. You know, like, I'm not down. I'm happy. He's with me. I even seen it. So then we did the third chemo, which was a lot harder. You know, I lost my hair. I was really losing weight. I started to look like a cancer patient kind of, you know. I'd look at myself in the mirror, and it just wasn't me. But I knew, like, I wasn't going to go out with cancer. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to see my kids get married. You know, I'm not going out like that, you know. So the third cancer, the third chemo, it did work. It knocked it down all the way to 5%. And so if you're under 5%, they consider you in remission. And so then we had to go to our, like, next step. And so I was like, all right, what's that? And they were like, well, you cannot get a stem cell transplant. And basically what a stem cell transplant is is you take somebody's blood and kind of their cells and you put it in your body, and their cells start producing uh, good cells for you so they get rid of my bad cells because that's what was producing the cancer. And so I was like, all right, if you get the stem cell transplant – you know, your chances of it coming back are high, are like lower, you know. It's not going to come back. So I was like, definitely, we'll do that, you know. I don't want it to come back. And so we did that. In order to do that, you need a donor. And I, obviously, they go to your siblings first in your family. And so I have a brother who's three years younger, and I have a sister who's three years older. And if you know me and my family, you know me and my brother are just alike. We sound alike. We'll pick up the phone On each other's friends and act like we're the, uh, you know, I'm my brother and he's me. Because we sound alike, we're just, we're compatible. So I'd have bet every dollar in my bank account that it was gonna be my brother, that was gonna be 100% match. But you know, me and my sister, we butt heads. And you know, I always like to pick on her and then she'll beat the crap out of me and then I'll cry wolf. (laughs) That's how it always was. And you know, and at this time, I won't get into too much of her life, but at this time, my sister was going down a dark path. She was not doing really well. You know, she was, uh, she was just, you know, she was at a real critical moment in her life, I feel like. And she could either go this way or that way. And, you know, the doctor came back in, and I remember me and my mom were sitting in that doctor's room, and I was like, I was like, man, I know it's gonna be my sister. You know what I mean? Like, me and my mom knew. Because I could swear it was gonna be my brother, and they came in, and, and me, before this, the hospital was striking out. Like, they weren't finding donors for people. They weren't doing nothing. And it's very rare to be a 10 out of 10. That's what the scale they put it on. Well, my brother was 7 out of 10. And my sister was 10 for 10. She was 100% match. And they were like, they were just in awe, you know. And, you know, God works in ways we don't know. And my sister was going down this path. And, you know, by the grace of God, she changed her life to save mine. And she's still doing great. She's still doing good. She's keeping a job. She's doing all this stuff, and, you know, I'm very proud of her. And I can never repay her for, you know, saving my life. And she had to go through some stuff, too. You know, they drain all that blood out of you so you get sick. You know, you just get bad. You know, like, she gets down, you know, and she went through all that to help me. And so she was 100% match. And so at that time, you know, they give you, and this is around November. So I was in the hospital for the chemo for, like, 50 days without seeing my kids. I got out, got to see him, uh, got to spend Christmas with him. Uh, But then, like in November, it was uh, my transplant, which was like another 30 to 40 days. I was in the hospital. And it drives me nuts because I got ADD, so I need to be doing something. They're like, you can do laps. I'm like, all right, I'm setting the record for these laps. You know what I mean? (laughs) So, yeah, that's kind of like, I mean, that's my testimony. I've got a couple more, but that was a big one in my life. And, you know, I'm. I truly, truly believe I couldn't have done it with a lot of you people here. You know, when I was down bad, you guys stood in the gap for me. You know, you guys prayed for me. People I didn't even know prayed for me. I mean, Aaron, my grandma, my mom, my wife. There was days I didn't want to eat, and every day my mom would buy me something to eat, soup, anything. She took care of me. You know, my wife holding it down for my kids at home. You know, it was very stressful for her. You know, and I'm sitting in there. So I couldn't have done it without you. And I stand here today, you know, cancer-free, and I stay here healthy because of you guys. So, you know, I appreciate it. So, And, yeah, that's all I really got. But I appreciate you guys praying for me and standing in the gap. This church is powerful. It is. I mean, it saved my life. It got my family closer to God, got my sister off the bad trail, back on a normal trail. And so, yeah, thank you guys so much. Thank you.
0: praise god for what he's done amen Amen. wow you know after something like that it's hard for me to follow up with a a sermon because you know that's that's powerful real real life right in your face stuff and it's, it's amazing what God can do. And I, I think, in relation to Ethan's testimony this morning, there's something we can learn from, from the message that I have today, too. If you would turn into John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. You know, we've been going through this book of John, and this week we begin to see conflict between the Jews and, and the Jewish leaders there. And all of this starts by basically. Catching a guy working on the Sabbath. For those who don't know, Sabbath stems from God's design for a week. You know that He created the heavens and the earth. Six days. On the seventh day, He rested. And so part of God's law was that man was to observe that one day of rest a week as well. And so the Jews would regularly practice the Sabbath starting on Friday evening, and it would end on Saturday evening. And the purpose was not only to abstain from work, but also to commune with God. So God set this up, and and this was instituted by the Lord, God set this up as something practical for us to observe because when we have rest, we work better. Amen? When we have rest, we work better. We have better focus. We have better rest in Him. Our spiritual lives are also strengthened. So, i just like to say from a practicality standpoint of why God instituted this, I believe that everyone should still recognize the Sabbath. For instance, my Sabbath is uh, on Fridays. I don't do Sundays. I work on Sundays. You might look at it and say, well, Sunday is my Sabbath day. Now, in Jewish culture, their Sabbath day is on Saturday. But I'm telling you what you need to do. You need to rest that one day a week. And then you need to also give that day to God. Do I have an amen there? Okay. Well, yeah, give God every day. But particularly, it's so easy for us to rest that one day and say, you know what? I'm going to hit the pause button today. On everything. Not with God. Not with God. So, as we're going to read today, Jesus is going to heal a man on the Sabbath, and I want you to observe particularly the responses of the people in this story, because the matter of the Jewish leaders' observances of the, uh, of the Sabbath, the work that Jesus performs, and it being on a Sabbath day, come into major conflict, and so we're going to read this, John chapter 5, verses 1-15, through 15. let's read. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city, near the sheep gate, was the pool of Bethsaida, with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blame, uh, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him, and he knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? I can't, sir, said, said the sick man. For I have no one to put me in the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that? They demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are well. Stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that, uh, God, as we read this detail of this account of of healing, God, that we can kind of understand and be able to read between the lines and everything that was going on here so that we can can take this passage of Scripture and we can apply it to our lives. I thank you and I praise you. And, God, I pray that you will uh, just speak through me today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I read this story, I see three noticeable behaviors. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about is, is the noticeable behaviors in this story. And the first one that really sticks out to me is with the lame man, if you see right away where Jesus asked him if he wanted to be healed, he said, "I can't, sir." He had excuses. This layman had excuses, and, and clearly he had some reasonable excuses. He hadn't been able to walk for 38 years, and now he has been laying by this pool, and we don't know how long that has been, where there are many like him there just waiting. And in the the NLT, the version that I read from this morning, they omit verse 4 because it wasn't included in early manuscripts of John. But something that I want to do is I want to read that verse for you today to get an idea of why they gathered, at least, to this pool. In verse 4, it originally states, "...waiting for a certain movement of the water, for an angel of the Lord came from time to time and stirred up the water, and the first person to step in after..." The water was stirred, was healed of whatever disease he had. Obviously, this what it does is, and even though, I mean, it could, it could definitely be God who did this, but in and amongst the people, it created what I call a kind of an animistic view of sitting there by the pool, and the first one in is the first one to get healed, and then everyone else is just, you know, they're kind of out. They're on the outside looking in, and... So all these people are laying by this pool, claiming into this belief that if just one of them got in first, they would be healed. But in the case of this man, if you're unable to walk, it is easier to cling to the excuse, the reality of not being able to walk, rather than being healed. So this man, here he is, he's hindered by this impairment and he was used to seeing others come before him. How many know that feeling where, where you see that, that one person always get that promotion in front of you or, or someone else always gets their way ever before you do? And so this man, that's what he was used to. And I'll say that he had a legitimate excuse, but it definitely was an excuse. And I can tell you that as a parent of special needs children... When you have certain limitations, especially over a matter of time, the hindrance in your life almost becomes the crutch. It becomes everything that you rest on, everything that you lean on. For instance, my oldest son, Josiah, he's limited in communication. And so when when he is trying to verbalize a need... There can be a great deal of frustration there between him and between us in trying to figure out what exactly it is he wants. And so we have seen his limitations, but there are times where even in even in his limitations, we know there are things that he is capable of doing that he doesn't do. For instance, if he says, if, if he points to that he needs something, Wendy and I might say, no. You do it. And his response always is, I can't. Like, no, you can do it. I can't. And so it's just this back and forth of because he has allowed that limitation to hinder other aspects of his life because Wendy and I, there, there are so many things that we have done for him over the years. And so this man in this story has become so oppressed And identified by his disability that he let everything be be limited to do anything, I should say. Now obviously in Jewish culture, there were no social programs for this man. In fact, the disabled people, what what would happen to them, they would be pushed to the outer courts or or the outer gates of the city and so most of them would be begging at the city gates as people came and left the city. Now there was this pool right by there that we read about it. it had the five covered porches and and all of them would also lay by that pool in hopes of being healed but as it was with all these people at the time hygiene and mobility were impossible for this man He received very little attention. He was that guy that you might see begging on the corner. He was that guy. So it's fair to say in his place, the situation seems very hopeless. And so here you have Jesus, and Jesus is just starting off his ministry, and, and Jesus is clearly entering Jerusalem at this time because of some festivals that are going on. And as he's entering, he's right there by the pool of Bethsaida, and he chooses to approach this man. And at that moment, Jesus chooses to have compassion and brought a miracle in this man's life. Now, I don't know if any of you have experienced a miracle like Ethan has experienced. Or this lame man has experienced where something that you have known, in this this man's case, something you have known for 38 years of your life is instantly taken away. Imagine the miracle. Imagine what that could potentially do for your life. Where that could change the trajectory of the rest of your life if you let it. All Jesus asked for for from this man was his obedience when he said, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. He could have taken the route of saying, I can't. But he did. He stood up, he rolled up his mat, and he walked away. Now, I, I read that, and I think how oftentimes we have a problem approaching the Lord because of our excuses, or accepting a healing because of our excuses. And so turning the attention to us for just a moment, when I use that phrase, excuses, I want to be very clear, we have legitimate excuses of why we might not be able to do something. This man hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. That's legitimate. But our excuses, if we allow them to, can define us. Because you might think, you know what, I'll never be able to do X because of Y in my life. I'll never be able to do that thing. Or I could do that if I didn't have this health issue. Or maybe if I attained so much money, I would be able to do that thing, but I've always been poor. You know, those are the kind of ways that we limit ourselves. And I also have heard it in the sense of, Pastor, I would come to church, but I had a headache. And so I didn't come to church. And I am telling you, the lame man at the time, he didn't know he was standing before the Son of God. And I read verses like Ephesians 3.20 that says, Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Now this man didn't know that. He didn't know that he could just approach Jesus and ask. But here is the thing. When I use that previous example about the headache, you do know who to go to in order to be healed. You guys hearing me? You know who to go to. And so when Jesus is standing before us, all of our excuses are meaningless. You are children of God. We have ran out of excuses when Jesus is right there, amen? He is the Son of of God, the Father, who is the most powerful being our minds could ever dream up or fathom. He created the heavens and the earth. He can take life away in an instant if He wants to. He can declare healing immediately. That's my God. And if you come to know him as that God, then we don't have excuses. But there's sometimes in our lives, sometimes in the lives of other people, that there are objections. And that's what we're going to see next in this story, are objections. Because this man just claimed this healing, right? He rolls up his mat, puts it under his arm, and he starts walking, right? The guy's walking for the first time in 38 years. And as he's walking, over off to the side, I imagine, you have these Jewish leaders who they're observing. All right, is that person keeping the Sabbath? Is that person keeping? He's not. He's not. And so immediately, they are on him because they feel the need to point out that he is breaking God's law at that very moment. I, I, I think about it, they were almost like modern day spiritual police. They, they were the religious police. And uh, the, the best way I can compare this to today, other than getting involved in, in the church particularly, I liken it to someone who sits on social media all day and waits for someone to make a grammar mistake only to point it out. Right? <laughs> I mean... And I'll admit, there are times when I'm that person, but then I make that grammar mistake and, and then I'm in trouble myself. But with, at the time, with the rules for Sabbath, they had 39, get this, they had 39 rules for rest on that day. 39. And so carrying something from one place to another on the Sabbath, was forbidden. So here is this guy. He had just been healed. A miracle he had never seen before in his life. He's just doing what Jesus told him to do. He tucked up that mat and he started walking. He's like, okay, you know, my life's clearly different now. So cool with that. But he walks up. Here's these Jewish leaders and they have a problem with him. I have a problem with you carrying that mat. And this guy who's been good at excuses all his life, he's like, (laughs) It's not me. That, that guy over there, he, he told me to do it. And that's the whole reason I'm carrying this is because he told me to. Well, who is that guy? Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know who he is. And so the Jewish leaders are looking at this as if someone has committed a crime, and so the lame man isn't excuses. He, he just did what he's always done. He's like, no, no, it wasn't me. It was, it was, the, lame, it was the, the man that healed me. And so these men, they were so focused on the time. Think about it. One of the most unique things just occurred in their lives. A man who had been disabled, who had been been limited all his life, from what we can read, all of a sudden is walking. And they decided to focus on what was right and wrong for that day. They were so restricted by what they knew that they couldn't see the work that God was currently doing right in front of them. Are you guys hearing me? Okay, because I'm going somewhere with this. This is the very identity of a religious spirit. I want you to hear me out. It's the very identity of a religious spirit. They are so bent on interpreting and following the word that they ignored the spiritual connection. Basically, so at the time, anyone who didn't observe or practice in their minds, they immediately became an enemy of God. And so based off their understanding of what God asked of them in His Word is what they said, that's what we're following. So it creates this conflict. And church, I'm telling you, you know what? I have seen God worshipped on five continents now. There's seven, and no one's going to Antarctica, so. And I have seen God worshiped in many unique settings. And I am telling you, in each of those settings, in their own different unique ways, if they allow themselves to, they can be blinded by their own religion. And church, I'm afraid that we can be guilty of this too. And what, well, I, I, just to break it down for, for the sake of pointing it out and learning from it, there are three ways that we can fall into the same trap that the Pharisees and Sadducees were falling into at the time. And the first way is uh, a traditionalist mindset. Now, there are traditions I love and there are traditions I hate. There are traditions you love and there's traditions you hate. For instance, I love Christmas. But anyone who's decorating for Christmas in October and November, you're crazy, Okay? But a traditionalist mindset is that, you know what, we have to do it this way because this is the way we've always done it. And it cannot dare change. And if it changes, we've sinned. It's an abomination before the Lord. We just can't, we, we just can't do that thing. And what we're doing and what we don't realize we're doing, we are applying our extra biblical thought into how we ought to serve God. And the reality is it has nothing to do with that. I'm telling you, the most unique experience I ever had worshiping God was in Papua New Guinea in a little village called Karawari. And there I can tell you, we are we are sitting on the, we're sitting on the floor. That's where they have church. They, they sit in the floor. Aren't you guys thankful for something upright that you can sit on? And so we're sitting on the floor, and you know I'm, I'm kind of a big guy, so I'm crossing my legs, and I'm moving my legs, and I'm just trying to keep them from falling asleep, right? And... Um, There's little naked kids running around while we're having church. I don't know how else to say it. There's little naked kids running around having church. There are pigs in the room. There's chickens in the room. And they are worshiping and praising God. And I'm like, okay, this is a unique experience. And I, I, I'd never seen that before. And I, I, I didn't know how to act. But I'm looking around at all these other people. And they did. They were worshiping God. And so I could have been stuck in my traditionalist mindset and saying, How dare they worship God in this manner? But they were the connecting with the God of the universe, and I was not. Because I was hung up on what they were doing. I've heard some crazy things. You know, and we can have many examples of, of what makes up for a traditionalist mindset, but I, I've, let's take baptism for a great example. You know, baptism, we have, we have this baptismal back here. And there was a day where the thought of bringing a baptismal inside the church was crazy. We'd always done it in lakes, rivers, streams, oceans. And now all of a sudden we're bringing it in a church. Okay, that's different. And now there are people that they, they, they only do it during the summertime and they'll maybe set up an inflatable pool in the church parking lot. Or I've seen churches now, they even bring out just horse troughs and the pastor doesn't even get wet. Could be a good idea. And. Um, <laughs> The, the pastor just sits off to the side and dunks them in, and, and that's ways they've done it. I've been at a concert where all they had, they, they had people that wanted to be baptized because they were preaching at this concert, and all they had were squirt guns, so they lined people up and hose them down with squirt guns. And I'm not to tell you whether or not that honors God. I'm going to tell you the, their hearts were right when they did it. And so, so, so here is what I know. We cannot allow traditionalist mindsets to hinder what God might want to do, amen? It can be through many ways expectations for worship or restricted to what a building or a setting needs to look like in order to call it a church. I'm telling you, we collectively make up the church. We are the church, not this building. Second thing, legalism, or what I call truth over grace. I want to read for you John 1 John It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and He beheld, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The way I see it in Scripture is that if you want to operate like Jesus, you better be fully prepared to operate in full grace and full truth. Because if you have one without the other, what happens is you become out of balance, If you lean too much grace, guess what? Then everything's permissible. And that's not good. If you lean too much truth, you become legalistic. Like the Pharisees and Sadducees did. You're not following God's law. And so we're pointing out each and every flaw in a person's life. And I'm telling you, you can't have one without the other. We can't just be a rule of do's and do nots. Because if we do... Anyone who doesn't follow the rules are going to be ostracized for it. And then here's the trouble in all this. How are we to lead people to Christ if the moment they walk in the door, it's like, no, 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 you're not living up to the standard. I don't want that. I hope you don't want that, that the second someone accepts Christ, you say, okay, now everything needs to be different in your life. You know what? We need to give room for the Holy Spirit to work. And we need to to give room for people to discover who they are in Christ. Let let God speak. Don't diminish the truth. Hear me out very clearly. We can't diminish the truth, and we can't hide it. We can't pick and choose what the truth is. It's all the Word of God. But we got to allow, allow the Holy Spirit to work in people's lives. Number three, and this one you might not see coming, but the super spiritual. And what I, I see is this can permeate us by a, by a feeling of all of a sudden, because I have attained in Christ, I am more superior because of my connection with God. That's what super spirituality says to me. And so my example of this in Scripture is when the, the Apostle Paul, he, he all the time was defending his ministry, and then people were doubting how good he was just because of the way he spoke. And so the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 5 and 6 and then I'm going to skip down to 22. He says, "But I don't consider myself inferior in any way to these super apostles who teach such things. I may be unskilled as a speaker, but I'm not lacking in knowledge." We have made this clear to you in every possible way. Are they Hebrews? This is skipping down to verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they may, are, are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. And yet it was this group that was trying to determine the standard based off of the good and bad things that that, that were happening in people's lives. If it appeared that God was blessing them, then clearly the favor of the Lord was on them and the favor of the Lord was not on people who bad things happened to. It was utter nonsense. And what we can do in turn, we can try and measure people up based off what the Spirit of God is doing in their life. And I understand where that comes from, and I understand that there are times where we might want to emulate that. But let me tell you, I have seen too many of believers, especially younger ones, where they start growing in the Lord, and all of a sudden they start elevating themselves up above everyone else. And it's like, they can't get down onto the level of everyone because they've discovered who God is. And you should get on the same 10-step plan that they're on. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Here's my encouragement to you. Read the Word of God, be open to its teaching, and respond to it. Respond to it. Encourage others to do the same and don't limit the work that Christ can do in them. Are you hearing me on that part too? Because sometimes we put our expectations on other people and it can hinder the growth that God is wanting to do in their lives. And so whether the Pharisees were objecting the lame man or Jesus Himself... There are times where we might be objecting a future evangelist, a missionary, or future pastor because of our expectations for them. We need to help others on focusing on walking in the obedience of the Lord. And here's the lesson that we really need to learn. Obedience is their choice. It's not our choice for them. Obedience is their choice. And that's where I want to end this today is just obedience being a choice. You know, the lame man had a choice here at what we read at the end of the story of who he was going to follow. He's confronted by these Pharisees, and and he, he is clearly ready to throw Jesus under the bus. I'll read it again in case you forgot, verses 14 and 15. It says, but afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are well, so stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. And you know why I have a feeling Jesus said stop sinning? Because he knew what was already going on in the man's life. Because the next thing that it says, then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. Here's what that says. I recognize what he did in my life, but me being in submission to those guys is more important. So, he may have brought healing to my life. But I've been led by them all my life. So so he went to the Jewish leaders and he said, you know what, it was that guy over there. He's the one that did it. He's the one that you need to handcuff or do whatever with. He's the one that you need to imprison, not me. So immediately, this guy, instead of walking in obedience and recognizing the good that the Lord Jesus Christ brought him, the man decides following them is much more important. And here's the thing about Jesus Jesus, you know, at, the, at, at those times, there were ceremonies that they might have done for healing, but Jesus didn't do any of that. All he did was walk up to the man and he said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. That's it. He didn't have to do anything special because Jesus Christ in and of himself is a miracle to humanity, amen? He is a miracle, and so there's nothing particular that he had to do. And as great as the miracle was, obedience, we learn, is more important. We've been talking about this for several weeks now. You know, as great as miracles are, miracles aren't what caused people to follow out after the Lord. We look to the children of Israel as a great example of that. They saw great miracles. It didn't change their response for many of them. And the greatest miracle of this man's life occurs. And he walks and he's more concerned with being subservient to these Pharisees than walking in the freedom that Jesus just gave him. And so Jesus looks at him, he sees him, and he says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Because I believe that we can be physically healed as a sign that God is powerful and active, but it still requires obedience to the Lord. So judging by the man's following actions of immediately running to those leaders, it demonstrates his faith. It shows us exactly where he was at. And we could go on to talk about how this was a huge crux for Jewish leaders in holding accusations against Jesus and how this, this kind of spiraled that every time they saw him, they tried to use this instance as one of the things where it proved that Jesus was, was a, uh, in a revolt, stood against everything that they had worked out in their own religion and faith. But I think more importantly, when you see something like what Jesus can do, when that old-time religion hadn't been doing anything for them, when you see what Jesus can do, you have to make a choice. And I am telling you, church, if we don't choose to just follow Jesus in obedience, we can risk it all. Listen to what Jesus says again. Now you are well, so stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. You know, Jesus was just starting his ministry, so I believe that he was putting it rather mildly to the guy, but the reality for us here is there's only two ways we can respond to God and through the Son, Jesus Christ. Is in obedience to him or in disobedience. There's not a happy medium. there's nowhere in between. We're either following Him in obedience or we're following him, or we're not following him in disobedience. And so what I want to leave you with is something a little bit more practical. It's eight reasons to obey. Eight reasons to obey. And the first one is, wow. Good luck reading that. Um, and I did that, by the way. so I have only one person to blame. Uh, Jesus calls us to. That's the first reason to obey. Jesus calls us to. And as simple as that might seem, your motivation for obedience should be your love for him. John chapter 14 verse 15, it says, if you love me, obey my commandments. Think about that. Number two, obedience is an act of worship. True Christian obedience, it follows a heart of gratitude. I want to read for you. Most of you probably know this verse, Romans 12 1. It says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Number three, God rewards obedience. Many places in scripture we are given promises of blessing and reward if we are obedient to him. Luke chapter 11 verse 28 it says, Jesus replied, but even more blessed are all who hear the word of God and put it into practice. Number 4. Obedience to God is what proves our love. If you read the books of 1st and 2nd John, this is the primary instruction in those books. 2 John verse 6 says love means doing what God has commanded us and he has commanded us to love one another just as you heard from the beginning. Number 5 Obedience to God demonstrates our faith. When we obey God we show that we trust him. 1 John 2, 3 through 6, it says, and we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God, com- God's commandments, that person is a liar and it is not living and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Number seven. Six, number six. Obedience is better than sacrifice. In the Old Testament law, it required sacrifices to God, but those sacrifices would never take the place of obedience. See, many people were sacrificing to God, but they weren't being obedient to Him. I want to read for you out of 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 through 23. Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is, far, is better than a sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of the rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Number seven, disobedience leads to sin and death. See, Adam's disobedience brought sin into this world and Christ's perfect obedience, it restores our relationship with God. So Romans five nineteen says, because one person in Adam disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous in Jesus Christ. And lastly, Through obedience, we experience the blessing of holy living. See, only Jesus Christ is perfect. You and I, we're going to fall short. We're going to sin. But if if we choose to allow the Holy Spirit to transform us, then we can grow in obedience. And the more you read God's word, the more you spend time in prayer, the more the Holy Spirit can work on us. 2 Corinthians 7: it says, "Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit, and let us work toward complete holiness because we fear God." Bible saying, "Follow, and you follow by doing what He says. And you will find that God rewards your steps of obedience. And I'm going to tell you, it's not going to come overnight that you're perfectly obedient. It's not going to happen. No one can possibly live up to that. But with the work of the Holy Spirit, what God's going to do is, He's going to be calling us systematically to repent of things that we've done and walk in this newness of life so that we learn from what we've done in the past and that we understand the, the blessing that comes from following and going forward in obedience to Him. Because He has a better way of living. And it's one that leads you and I to eternity And that's why he gives us this truth. Because let me tell you, in just just wrapping this up, you and I cannot maintain something that he deems as sinful and also a relationship with him. We can't maintain that. It's impossible, and Jesus goes as far as to call this a house divided, and these two opposing forces, they can't stand together, so don't think you can maintain it in your life, because you're not going to maintain it, because if you try and maintain sin, and try and maintain your walk with the Lord in church, I'm going to tell you that sin is going to rule your life. You're going to say, well, just a little bit is okay, right? Right, Pastor? No, no. We either want all of Christ or we want none of him. And so really where this leaves us, it leaves us with a great warning. Jesus says, stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. Let's talk about those worst ramifications as we end. Colossians 3, 5, and 6. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Brian, as you could come and just strum. My response to this church, and I want to be very clear. It could be easy that you could be sitting out there and you're like, wow. He's really trying to nail me today. And I'm going to tell you, when I preach messages like this, I understand that if you feel there's a finger point at you, there's three point back at me. I write these for myself too, not just you. And I want to be very clear. I only have one appropriate response to this. It's repentance. Repentance. See, God in his loving kindness, he comes down, he heals. He does amazing things. But then he says, now, be obedient. And you and I, we have a choice. We can repent of those old, foolish ways that that constantly bring about sin in our life and, and distances us from, from God, his word, and what he's asking us to do. Or we can say, you know what? I'm gonna choose to walk in repentance. And repentance means that I recognize these things in my life as sinful. And you know what? I'm going to lay them down at the feet of, of Christ, right at the cross. I'm gonna say, God, they are yours. It's not mine anymore. I'm not going to pick up that sin. I'm not going to take it back with me. I'm not going to find myself playing the game where I am constantly asking for repentance of the same thing, fully anticipating doing it tomorrow because I'm letting you know that's not repentance. Repentance is true remorse over the things you have done to say, God, I recognize that this distances me, but me and you. And so I give this to you and I choose obedience from here on out. That's true, Repentance Church. And so I'm telling you, there is so many times in my life where I have needed to say, God, I repent. I repent of my attitude. I repent of my actions. I repent of those things I still cling to. I still pick back up. We have to declare in our lives that sin can't rule here anymore but Jesus Christ can so I ask each and every one of you to close your eyes and I I said the only appropriate way I can respond is by repenting and I'm encouraging you if you are like me to be able to right now in response and say, I repent, just stand with me if that is you. And what I ask you to do, some of you might not be able to stand, but let's lift lift our arms up to heaven and cry out to him, the God of the universe, the God that sent his son so that we can walk in repentance. Heavenly Father, Lord, you see that hands are lifted high in this place and God, I speak for myself and they speak for themselves as their hands are lifted. God, I repent. I repent of my foolish nature, God. I repent, Lord, of my actions. I repent of my attitude, God. And God, I surrender all that I am unto you. Lord, it is not okay to try and maintain this relationship with the world and with you. But God, I am standing before you today saying, I choose you in Jesus' name. And God, as everyone else is standing here, we are declaring, God, we choose you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we are walking in repentance, we are laying this down before you right now. God, the cross which took took on the sins of the world, God, we are laying it down at that cross, and we are saying we choose your son. We choose the resurrected life of Jesus Christ that sustains us, that gives us hope, that, Lord, we can rest in eternity because of it. God, I just pray that our hearts be about obedience to you, Father. Lord, unlike the man in the story, that, Lord, it was so easy for him to just follow the ways of the world and run to the Pharisees. God, I pray that we will be more concerned about obedience to you than what the world has to say about our obedience. And, Lord, May we be open to the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Lord, may we read your word. God, may our prayer lives thrive so that we can understand what true obedience looks like. I praise you, God. I thank you, and I thank you for all these people here today saying, Lord, I choose repentance. I choose to be obedient to your word. I praise you and thank you. you are good in Jesus name and all God's people said